today we want to talk about something specific. We, as we went, we're going through the book of Acts and we got into Acts chapter 2, um, we, we had, there's so much there to cover and basically neither Alex nor I, who were kind of sharing a bit of Acts chapter 2, felt like we had enough time to really unpack what we see in Acts chapter 2, verses 42 to 47. It is indeed one of these places where Luke is summarizing so far what's happening. So let's pick it up in Acts chapter 2, verse 42. I'll read verses 42 to 47. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day. Now, we want to make sure that we do recognize that the very first Jesus followers, these people that we're learning about in the book of Acts, these were not perfect people. These were people that had temptations and trials and struggles. As we saw last week, these were people who could go to church and not actually belong to Jesus. They could play the part. They could play the hypocrite. That this common things that we see today were still there then. But there's no doubt that when Jesus first starts building his church, he does so in a radical, powerful, demonstrable way. That people could see that he was doing something in their lives. And it's important for us to see when we talk about this, when we see how radical this lifestyle is, it's important for us to see this is normal Christianity. That that when we are lukewarm or we're lazy or we purposely limit our service or our love towards people, when we're doing that and saying we follow Jesus, it's we who are abnormal. No matter how often that is the case in churches around the world, and usually it's churches in the West, if we're being honest, it's not normal Christianity. Normal Christianity is radical devotion. And we see the church doing this in the summary section of verses 42 to 47 of Acts chapter 2. So I want to give you guys three basic things about how the early church was the devoted church. The first is this. They were devoted to worship. In verse 42, Luke lines up four ways that they worshipped. He starts in verse 42 by mentioning the apostles' teaching. Simply put, they were learning about Jesus, the apostles, those 12 who had a unique authority, which we'll talk about in a minute, they were teaching um, who Jesus was, what Jesus taught, what Jesus did, and how that fulfilled all the Old Testament had written. They would teach the Old Testament scriptures in light of of the life, death, resurrection, the person, the character of Jesus. Which is why the the first Jesus followers in the first two, three hundred years, almost every battle was about rightly identifying who Jesus is. So when it says that they they continued, uh, devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, it means they were devoted. This is not just the apostles were devoted. 
but the listeners were devoted to rightly know the right Jesus. If we get Jesus wrong, we get everything else wrong. If we get Jesus right, we can build from there. But also, listen, their worship of God wasn't just about learning about Jesus. It was actually sharing the life that we have in Jesus. Jesus doesn't just give us a new way to live. He gives us a new life. We're born again by the Spirit. That's what the word is, is mixed up in this word, fellowship. They devoted themselves to, notice it says in the ESV, the fellowship. Now, you might notice as well the way this is, it is phrased in almost every English version. It says, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayers. That, that Luke seems to be coupling these two things together, these two sections. And one of the reasons is, is if we're going to share the life that we have in Jesus, we actually have to have life in Jesus. We've got to know who Jesus is. We've got to know what we're trusting him for. We need him to give us that new life by the power of his Holy Spirit. But when we have that, we're meant to share in that life. None of us are meant to live the Christian life on our own. It's meant to be lived in corporate. Now, how do these two things go together, the, the, the apostles' teaching and fellowship? Well, the, the, the issue is the, the way we have fellowship is we have fellowship around what we know to be true about Jesus. What he's done for us, he's done for every believer. Who he is is who he is, whether we believe it or not. And our fellowship, our, our shared life is built on who he is. So, so, so the reality is, though, though the sharing of life is practically and personal, and we'll talk about that more in a minute, it has to be also doctrinal. We have to have the right understanding of who Jesus is, and we've got to agree on that. We can disagree on sort of, how the Holy Spirit works today. We can disagree on what, how churches should be stru uh, structured. We can disagree on modes of baptism. We almost became Presbyterians today because we couldn't fill up the pool for full immersion, so I thought we have to just sprinkle Jay. <laughs> but, but we can, and we can disagree on those kinds of issues, but we cannot disagree about Jesus if we're going to really have fellowship. We're going to share life. But then he says these other two, the breaking of bread. And this is, uh, of course, as we've talked about many times before, this was in reference to, to the, the, the uh, agape meal that they have together, very similar to what we're doing today, kind of a bring and share meal. And the, and the culmination of that meal would either, either begin or end with remembering what Christ has done through communion, which we're going to do together this afternoon or this, this morning. And of course, prayers. So, so, Prayers are us basically seeking the help of Jesus. You might say the breaking of bread is us remembering our dependence upon Jesus, and that's why we break bread. I hope today as we take communion together that the issue is not just you feeling really guilty about the sins you've done this week. That's not the point of communion. The point of communion is to give thanks. That's why in most traditions it's called the Eucharist, the giving of thanks. It's a Greek word for the giving of thanks. It's the giving of thanks as we're thanking Jesus for what he's done. Remembering what he's done is sufficient. And remember that until he comes back. And prayers, of course, are us seeking the help of Jesus. This is really important because, listen, when we talk about the worship of God being diligently practiced, and we talk about this being devoted to these kinds of worship practices, we're not talking about self-improvement. We're not even talking about, listen, just personal disciplines. We're talking about 
corporate worship. How we declare the worthiness of God together. Because the object of our worship is not our worship. The object of our worship is God himself. It's Christ himself. Jesus made it really clear when he was being tempted by Satan. Here's what he said. He said to, he, in, in, in Matthew chapter 4, he, Jesus is quoting Deuteronomy chapter 6. And he says, then Jesus said to, to him, be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. Why should we get together on a Sunday when I can just watch it on a video screen? Because God's commanded you to worship him that way. He's called you to come together and worship. So devoted to worship means that the worship of God would diligently practice. And what was the result of that in verse 43? The presence of God was powerfully experienced. Verse 43 says, And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. Now at this point in the book of Acts, the emphasis is still on how the apostles are doing the miracles. We're going to see that expand later on. But right now that's the emphasis. Because in the Jerusalem church, what the Jerusalem church needed, the first Jesus followers mainly being in Jerusalem, they needed to see that this authority of God, the authority of God's word, is now being directed through the apostles. But I want to kind of just recognize, too, what this idea is of awe. Some of your versions say fear. I, I want to define this as a reverent humility before a holy God. That's awe or fear. I don't know if you guys have ever witnessed a real powerful storm. I've seen some pretty dramatic thunderstorms in my day when I was uh, when we lived in Southern California. I was once camping and and we heard that it was a a big flood was going to come. There's going to be flash floods in the desert. There's often flash floods. If you've seen a flash flood, I mean, seeing it on video is one thing, but if you see a flash flood in person, it feels like an earthquake, and then you see this rolling wave of mud and debris and water just going along this dry riverbed. And it's just like, wow. And the storm and even the, 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 that kind of flash flood, there's a beauty to it, but there's a, rever- there's a reverence. In fact, when you see the power of that, when you sense the power of that, even though you're going, gosh, that's beautiful. Even though as a surfer, I'm thinking, I could ride that wave. <laughs> even with that, you're going, thank you that I'm here and not in the midst of that because if I was too close, I'd be dead. This is the idea of awe or reverence. There's a beauty, but there's a fear. Not because God wants to destroy us, but because God is beautifully and perfectly holy. This is what happens when God's people are devoted to worship. When they're devoted to worship, what ends up happening is they're in this place where they actually begin to experience the awesome nature of God. They begin to experience, listen, when we as God's people are devoted to worship God, devoted to these kinds of practices, we then begin to experience God's presence in a powerful way. This is what we read in 1 Corinthians 14, remember this? That in 1 Corinthians 14, Paul writes about that when all prophesy or when God's word's being spoken or when people are actually pursuing love and desiring the work of the Spirit, as he said in 1 Corinthians 14, when that happens, what happens? That people come in and they go, surely God is in this 
place. This is meant to be the experience that we desire. And this happens not because we experience or because we pursue it. It happens because we are devoted to worship God as he says we ought to worship him. These signs and wonders, in fact, in Acts 2, were done specifically to confirm the authority of the apostles and the trustworthiness of their message. So that when people come into a place and they see, gosh, look at how these people love each other. Look how these people are, are committed to each other. Look how these people serve each other. And we're doing that by the power of the Holy Spirit. When that happens, people come in, they go, surely God is in this place. I need to know this God. I need to hear this message. This is normal Christianity. The author of Hebrews says this, he says, such a great salvation was declared at first by the Lord. Jesus himself told us about how he'd save us. And it was attested to us by those who heard, while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. Jesus provides it, the Holy Spirit applies it, we get to experience it. This is the great salvation. This is what God's calling us to. The early church was devoted to worship and they experienced this. But also, listen, they were devoted to one another. Look at verse 44. In verse 44 it says, And all who believed were together and had all things in common. Now the idea here is that they're practicing a real loving hospitality. They're not forsaking their daily responsibilities. Don't picture the elite Jesus followers as those that said, hey, it's so amazing to be a Christian. Let's just quit our jobs, man. Let's just hang out. It's not like kind of hippie commune. The, the, the church that uh, we're a part of, Carrie Chapel, kind of started from hippie communes. But, th but that's not really the point. The point is that they, they continue their kind of daily responsibilities. They were living their lives, but they were committed to see one another thrive. If your decision about being part of fellowship, committing to church, if your decision to do that is based on what you get out of it only, you're missing it. It's about what you can receive, but also about what you can give. It's about one anothering. These guys practice this. Now also, we're, we're, well, the indication here, as we've been seeing in the book of Acts, is that there was this pretty radical generosity, which we'll talk about in, in a second. But I think it's important for us uh, to, to definitely recognize that they didn't give up everything they owned. It wasn't, this wasn't some kind of new communism. This wasn't a, a new economic ideology. This was just a radical love. It's also important for us to recognize that often this was showed simply in having people to, in, in each other's homes. So it's a very simple thing. Having people over. Helping people from your home, with your home. It's a very basic aspect of us being Jesus followers. Peter says this in 1 Peter chapter 4. I'm going to read from the New Living Translation. Peter says, most important of all, continue to show deep love for each other, for love covers a multitude of sins. And the hint there is you're going to be tempted not to love people because they're a pain. 
but love them anyway, okay? And here's how you do it. Listen, cheerfully share your home with those who need a meal or a place to stay. Sarah and I have just been the benefit of, of living with another family for the last 14 months. Now, no one's happier for, to have their own home than we are, except possibly the Mussins who we lived with for 14 months. But I'll tell you what, it was a blessing because even though we knew it was, we could be a burden, we, any, anybody at your house is a burden, they never made us feel that way. Amen. And it allowed us to be ready for this next season of life in a way that we just couldn't have done unless we had that situation. This is just normal Christianity, actually. But they didn't just practice this loving hospitality and their devotion to each other. They also practiced what I want to call a gospel-centered generosity. Like we said, this is not a new economic ideology, but radical love. Look at verse 45. In verse 45 it says, And they were selling all their possessions and belongings and distributing the needs to all as any had need. Now, one of the things that's happening here is that um, because they're all in Jerusalem and because they're so waiting for Jesus to come back, remember in, in Acts chapter 1, they saw Jesus ascend into heaven. You guys remember that? And they're all just kind of standing there. The disciples are standing there like, what is going on, you know? And the, the, the angels, we assume their angels were there, and the angels kind of say, why are you gazing up in the heaven? This same Jesus is going to return the same way. And we believe that, that what they were talking about there is what Zechariah talks about, that Jesus will physically, literally return, step down on the Mount of Olives, and that sucker will split in two. Right. He's going to come back. But they were thinking, he's going to come back anytime now. So there was... That was mixed in into selling everything and giving it away. But they also often, we'll see from the context, kept back some stuff. We saw when that was done in the wrong way last week, but there's also times when it was done in the right way. The, the point is this, listen. The point is, what they're actually doing here is doing the very thing. They're motivated to do the very thing Jesus said they needed to do. In Mark chapter 10, now I'm reading from the NIV. In Mark chapter 10... There was a time when, when Peter decided to speak up and say his mind. Shocker. And Peter said this. He said to Jesus, we left everything to follow you. He's bragging. Humble brag. Bit of a flex there. Truly, I tell you, Jesus replied, no one who has left home or brothers or sister or mother or father or children or fields for me and the gospel will fail to receive a hundred times as much in this present age, homes, brothers, sisters, mothers, children, and fields, along with persecutions, and in the age to come, eternal life. So Peter, in the beginning of his being trained by Jesus, is like, man, we are so sacrificial, Jesus. Pat, pat, pat. And Jesus says, dude, no one's going to gain more than you out of this deal. And what you need to know, yes, you're going to have these, these blessings are going to come, but also there's going to be persecutions. But ultimately, this is what leads to eternal life. This is what, what assures us that we actually have eternal life, is this kind of devotion. And so when the early church does this in Acts chapter 2, they're just basically showing, they believe what Jesus says. Man, life's short. I don't want to hold on to stuff. I don't want to be like that guy who built bigger barns only to die. 
only to hear the words of Jesus, you fool, today your soul's required of you. It's so easy for us to do that. And this is not about uh, tithing more necessarily. This is not about uh, every single one of you needs to pick someone else to live at your house for 14 months to be like the Muslims. It's not about that. It is, though, listen, it is about being so eternally minded that we say, Lord, we don't care what it costs us. We want to love like this by the power of your Holy Spirit. We want to be devoted to one another. So were they devoted to worship? They were devoted to one another. But also, and maybe this is the one that feels the most counterintuitive, but they were devoted to their community. I want you to pay attention how Luke describes this devotion. Remember, Luke is summarizing right now. He's summarizing where they were at at this point. Luke, uh, look, look what Luke writes in verse 46. He says, And day by day, attending the temple together, and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with gladness and generous hearts. Now, I want you to think about this for a second. So the early church did meet in homes. We'll see that in just a minute. But they also still, these first Jesus followers, in the early days and weeks and months of following the resurrected, ascended Jesus by the power of the Spirit, in the first days of doing this, what were they doing? They were still going to temple. Who's in the temple? Loads and loads of Jews who didn't believe in Jesus. We have to think about this because sometimes we think, in fact, I've heard this usually applied, see, they were at the temple. You should be in church. But that's actually probably not the right application to this. The, more, the right application of this is more akin to we're going to hang out with people on purpose who maybe their religious commitment is a bit wonky. Now, I'm not saying go to the Mormon church or go to the local mosque. I'm not saying do any of that kind of stuff. That's not necessarily wise. But I am saying this. If there's not an intentionality about being with people that are seeking or are confused or need to know Jesus or should know Jesus but don't, if there's not an intentionality about pursuing those people, we are lacking some of the devotion that the Holy Spirit was producing in the first church, first Jesus followers. See, they grew together. In other words, they were going together to grow. They were going to the temple to worship God. They were going to this place of, of religious tradition that would eventually sort of die out, literally be destroyed. They're going to this place because, listen, they want to grow. And they want to grow in front of or among the community. So, so this verse that we bring up all the time, these verses we bring up all the time, uh, so much so that we, we, I think we get sick of hearing it, but we actually don't do it very well, which is why we bring it up all the time, where Jesus says, they will know you're my disciples by your love for one another. We always forget that last bit. We always say, oh, for love. And so we think, oh, love, if I'm just kind and nice and polite thoughtful, that's enough. Love. But it's actually love for one another. In other words, they went to the place, the temple, where, where the Jews were worshiping the God that they actually knew in truth. Because, even, even though they had rejected his Messiah, they're still going to that place and they're worshiping God in front of these people. And why are they doing this? They're doing this, as we'll see, as we saw in chapter 3, because they, God was going to use them to show that Jesus was indeed the Messiah. They could see not just what God was going to do supernaturally through them, but they could see their lives changing. In the summer, we, we exhorted you, some of you guys, uh, I think we did it this year, we do it most summers, where we say, look, 
we're, we do this kind of uh, summer challenge and we say, um, you know, have people over and uh, we, we often will say, a good thing to do is invite someone in the church that you know well, invite someone in the church you don't know well, or invite someone in the church that you, you, you know well and invite neighbors that you don't know well, or invite someone from the church that you don't know well and get to know them better. Because the reason you want to get to know other people in church better is so that you can have the kind of relationships that demonstrate this kind of supernatural love. So that when the community watches how you love one another, they go, wow, something's radically different here. And the church was successful in this. Look at the first part of verse 47. In verse 47 it says, and they were praising God. I should say this too. Sorry. They were in the temple and they were breaking bread in their homes and they received their food with glad and generous hearts. Hopefully that's going to happen this afternoon. And they were praising God and having favor with all the people. So this is important for us to get our heads around. Being devoted to the community doesn't mean we look to be pleasing to them. And we don't want to be annoying to them either. I'm just saying, but the goal is not to be man-pleasers. Sometimes what I, I've seen is that churches are either good at being devoted to one another or devoted to the community. So they're devoted to one another, but they, it's all insular. Like nobody gets in. And that church gets clickier and clickier. Sometimes it even gets smaller and smaller. And they're just kind of connected to each other. And they never actually reach out. Or they're devoted to the community because they know that Jesus wants to save the people there, not just here. And so they're really committed. But the way they're devoted to community is we've got to make sure the community thinks we're good people, that we're doing things they expect us to do. And both those things are a mistake. See, it, it, what we should be is we should be praising God. That is saying, God, you're worthy of our lives. Our commitment is to please you. And because you say pleasing you means committing as a priority to other believers, even though I like my secular friends better, I'm going to commit to believers. And, and I'm going to commit to them. Why? Because as I do that, it's going to demonstrate to them. But does that really work? It does. Look at what he says in verse 47. Praising God and what? Having favor, it says, with all the people. In other words, those that were watching, that's the Jews in the temple, that's the other neighbors and stuff that saw them, those who watched them said, man, these guys, these, there's, 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 there's something different about these guys. I, I got to hand it to these guys. There's a zeal there. There's a commitment there. There's a love there. there there's something there that... that, that that we think is good, to, to have favor. The word literally means grace, which is why this point, I'm calling this point grace from God in the community. The, 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 here the word is used, it's translated favor because it's the community that has, is showing favor to these, to these Jesus followers. In other words, the community is saying these are favorable people or the kinds of people we're attracted to or the kinds of people that we want to exemplify or know. But that comes from the grace of God to us. And the grace of God through us. This is what they were devoted to. So let me ask you just something really, really, really clear, really, really pointed. Are we wanting to really grow together like this? I mean, I mean, I mean, I mean this series. This is not, and forgive me for you guys who are visiting today, you're just guests today, you're visiting for the first time. This might seem a bit heavy. This is really more for people who already consider servants their home church, but 
Do you really want to grow together in such a way that people look at how we relate to each other and say, surely God is in this place, surely God's doing something in their life, surely that's something we should exemplify. If you go, well, yeah, that'd be nice, but actually I just want to make sure I can go to a place that's not going to teach me false doctrine and the music's decent and the coffee's good. Because if you want that, I can recommend some other churches. But if you want to be the devoted church that Jesus is calling us to be, the church that Jesus builds, if you want to be that, then let's do it. Let's do it. Because the thing is, we're talking about, next, from next week on, we're going to talk about that appetite for outreach. We're, going to, we're using December, we're being prayerfully intentional about using December to reach out to our unchurched friends and family. This is what we're going for. But listen, if they come here and they see us rolling our eyes at each other or complaining about every, everyone else who's in the church, they're not going to see anything that they haven't seen a hundred times before. But if they see how radically different we are and how naturally annoying most of us are, or most of you are, <laughs> if they see that and yet we're still loving one another, there's going to be a better opportunity for them to go, okay, surely God's doing something here. This is why we spend 10 to 20 minutes having tea and coffee. It's not just because the queue is long or your kids are really hard to get signed in. It's so that we can take steps forward to each other. We want to be devoted to the community by being devoted to one another. What happens? Does this actually work? Yeah, they don't only have favor, but look what he says at the end of verse 47. He says, praising God, having favor with all the people, and the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. I love this. See, God is not just interested in growing us as spiritual individuals. He wants to add to our church family from the community. Now, if you come to Servants Church from another church, you, you, I hope you know you're totally welcome. We, we don't say you can't come, it's transfer growth, get out. We don't do that, okay? But be honest, we really aren't looking for transfer growth. What we're looking for is organic growth, the kind of growth that only God can produce people who don't know Jesus, who see something different in the way we treat each other, who then want to know about Jesus, and then we tell them about Jesus, and then they receive Jesus, and they start getting changed by Jesus. We had a, a, a woman who received the Lord a couple weeks ago, and it was glorious, and that's exactly how it happened. Someone befriended her on the school run. And invited her to the coffee morning. And she saw these Christian people. They seemed to have it all together. And then they shared with her. Oh, no, no, no. All these ladies were saying, oh, no, no. We, we, have, we do not have it all together. It's Jesus who's good, not us. Amen. And then so she was, then they invited her to church. And she came to church. And she said, I think this is what's been missing in my life. And then she came the second time. And she heard the gospel clearly presented. And she thought, I need, this is her words, I need God to save me. This is what God does when we, by his spirit, do what he wants us to do. When we're devoted to his priorities. A great verse in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 8, where Paul writes, So, this is Paul writing to a church that he went and planted in about six weeks' time. 
he didn't know these people for very long, but man, he like fell in love with them. He says, so being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our, also our own selves, because you had become very dear to us. What motivates this kind of devotion? What motivates the kind of devotion where we, want, we are just devoted to worship? Lord, you are worthy to be worshipped, so we're not going to just say, oh, we showed up, isn't that enough? We want to worship you in truth. The apostles' teaching, fellowship, breaking the bread, prayers. We want to say, Lord, you and you alone are worthy to be worshipped, and we want to worship you alone and do it in the way you want us to do it. What motivates that kind of devotion? What motivates the, motivates the kind of devotion where we... We are committed to one another as we would be our own blood family, no greater than we would be to our own blood family. What motivates that kind of devotion? What motivates the kind of devotion that says, I want to live my life in such a way that I actually impact my neighbors and my coworkers? What motivates this kind of devotion? Only one thing, the devotion that we see in Jesus. See, where we've failed to be devoted to our communities and to one another and even to worship, where we've failed to be devoted, Jesus completely succeeded. Completely succeeded. And what that means is, that means we can be assured that even in our failure, we can have a right standing with our holy God because he's made a way through the perfect life and death and resurrection of Jesus. See, here's the reality. Listen. Jesus was devoted to the Father. This is why when Satan tempts him, he says, I'm going to worship my Father. Go away, Satan. I'm going to worship my Father. He was devoted to his Father through his life, death, and resurrection. Completely devoted. And because through his death, he pays this price for me and for you. And through his resurrection, he guarantees us a righteousness I can know he paid the price for me. I can know I'm forgiven. I can know my future is secure. I have eternal life. That's what's waiting for me. And guess what? That's good motivation to be devoted. To be devoted to you. To be devoted to us. To be devoted to the communities that God's put us in. 